I'm Ruth Hansford and my PhD is looking at musicians changing relationship with their ears over the course of their performing lives. My dilemma, which I think is not uncommon, is how to turn science into an arts and humanities PhD. Serendipitously, I came across Walter Benjamin's essay, The Storyteller. It's about Nikolai Leskov, who tells these wild, colourful, chaotic stories about Russian life. And the phrase that leapt off the page at me from this was, storytelling is an artisan form of communication. Now, classical musicians tend to be great storytellers. They're also artisans. They spend ages perfecting a really specific skill obsessively. Then they have big chunks of time when they're just hanging out together, telling stories, gossiping. So how to turn that into a PhD? People said to me, what's your theoretical framework? I had no idea how to answer that question. Then I got an email from Christian Gilliam, who wanted people for the steering group for his techne conflux on philosophy and critical methods. I signed up and we met and had a chat in the bar at Surrey where he was based. In terms of the theme for this conflux, it is on critical uh, research to refer to the underlying assumptions that we as researchers make in order to research, so sort of those presuppositions about um, the object or subject that we're studying, um, the knowledge that we gain of that subject and how we are to gain it and the purposes of it. And what do you see as a critical research paradigm? Well, we understand it in quite a broad sense. So critical comes from critical theory, which traditionally is associated with what is known as the Frankfurt School. Uh, it's pretty much a neo-Marxist group of thinkers from uh, Germany who emigrated to uh, the United States due to Nazi uh, persecution. And really their focus is on cultural studies, so the way that capitalism sort of uh, produces and invites a particular type of cultural production and culture in, in that broad sense to include the arts, to include uh, television, radio, newspapers, uh, that sort of thing. But as I say, I'm understanding critical in a broader sense, uh, really going back to Immanuel Kant, a uh, German philosopher, early 18th century, and he's very famous for producing three critiques, the three very thick books that are almost impossible to read. But the first one, perhaps the most important, is a critique of pure reason. So in other words, he's putting reason on trial. What is it that we mean by reason? Is it consistent? Uh, and is it indeed secular? So Kant's putting it on trial, and it's a trial of reason by reason itself, which creates quite a curious um, endeavour. And this really opened the floodgates for philosophy, um, at least in Europe in that period, um, particularly in terms of critiquing knowledge itself, actually looking at what it is we mean by knowledge, how is it that we gain knowledge, and how can we be sure that the knowledge we have is accurate, that it is true. Uh, of course, Kant came to the, to the conclusion that our knowledge can be accurate because it is determined by universal and necessary laws of reason. 
So the mind has this faculty by which it can understand its experiences and make sense of it. The key moment really comes with thinkers like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, another German philosopher. There's Freud as well, uh, Austrian, and Karl Marx. And they all expand this critique beyond reason in various capacities. Um, very briefly, Nietzsche he argues that Kant's idea of reason is very much an extension of God. Uh, Nietzsche sort of you know, puts forward this uh, rhetorical question, you know, what if God is dead? In other words, what if, what if reason is dead? Um, and this leads him to conclude that actually all knowledge is not only a matter of interpretation, but a matter of interpretation according to power. And Marx makes a very similar argument in terms of ideology. What we take to be common sense is actually very much influenced by the economic arrangement that we find ourselves in, uh, an economic arrangement that, through various capacities, ends up um, creating a, a, a language and a series of ideas that justifies itself. And Freud, he really um, undermined this idea, although largely influenced by Nietzsche, that human agency is centred on conscious thought. You know, Freud really investigated the, the depth of the unconscious and the extent to which our unconscious drives um, determine our actions and therefore the way that we appropriate our understanding of the world and therefore our knowledge. So, in a nutshell, critical theory or critical research questions the idea that our knowledge and our pursuit of knowledge is in any way neutral or transparent or clear or pre-given. Okay, so that brings us to what early part of the last century. Mm -hmm. We're talking about things that are the best part of 100 years old. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's important to think about this stuff when you're doing a PhD in something which isn't philosophy? So... For example, my PhD is in the music department, music and media department at Surrey University, and I'm looking at musicians and their relationship with their ears. Why do you think it's important for people like me to look at this stuff? Um, well, it's a good question. I think, generally speaking, uh, the two ways you could answer it. Uh, one, you could say that, well, perhaps... Uh, within critical research, you might find a theoretical framework that would enhance your research, bearing in mind, of course, that critical research is not just about Kant or Nietzsche or Freud or Marx, but also gender theory coming off the back of post-structuralism, structuralism and so forth. So there's a, a wealth of theories there to, to draw from. But in the second sense, it invites a type of self-reflexivity, that is to say invites you as a researcher to really question why you're doing your research and why you're doing it the way that you're doing it, not to assume that uh, in any way, shape or form you're this disinterested um, priest of knowledge, which often, you know, scientists like to think of themselves as being, you know, uh, quite objective, which is often very questionable. Uh, it's not to say that, you know, the research they do doesn't yield anything of interest, but often it's seen as being quite neutral or, or separate from any kind of social, political, economic issues. But more often than not, 
knowledge is very much driven by those factors. So if you as a researcher, even if you're not directly using those theories, if you are capable and you're given the, the concepts and language uh, by which to reflect on yourself and what influences you, that can only but further enhance your pursuit of objectivity. And do you think that it's possible to have a kind of mix and match approach to theory? Do you think that PhD researchers need to focus on one thinker, or one line of thought, one tradition, and follow that through? Or do you think it's possible to take what yeah. appeals to you or what you feel is relevant? It should be a magpie. Um, I think critical theory is very much about being malleable. But one of the one of the problems is that the, if you like, dogmatism that determines you should follow a particular school of thought and just use one set of concepts and to specialise. And I think that in itself, you could say from a critical perspective, that in itself is quite questionable, you know, to specialise so early on and not have that more holistic understanding. You know, the goal here is not just to be a specialist in critical theory, it's actually to really pursue that enlightenment ideal. So even if we might be questioning the realms of reason, we're still questioning that from a position of reason. We want to be reasonable people. We want to have a, a, a reason-considered approach to things for the sake of knowledge as much as possible. Mm. Yeah, interestingly, I have just been reading Richard Sennett's The Craftsman, and he refers back to Diderot and the Encyclopedias of the Enlightenment, and he actually goes into artisans' workshops and watches you know, different kinds of craftsmen and women at work and that is that's a you know the encyclopedia is obviously a, a very important reference book if you like for for the enlightenment and that's very much grounded in the real world of the workplace mm -hmm. for example yeah. and uh, and i feel that does it does help you to have a, a kind of a, st a structure for your own thought whether yeah. how that translates i um I haven't quite figured out yet, but I'm sure there are plenty of other people who are halfway through their PhD and haven't figured out stuff. Yes, yeah, part of the journey. It's well. part of the yeah. journey. <laughs> so each theory uh, that we deliver via a workshop, so it's sort of a half lecture, half interaction, each one of those will be led by an academic um, who does research in, in, that, uh, in that field. But then we also have some workshops planned that once you know the students are familiarised with those theories, aim to um, enable the students to apply the theoretical language um, to their own work, but also um, to apply it in a way that doesn't compromise its uh, integrity or autonomy, particularly in uh, keeping in mind uh, the sort of STEM-centric thinking that we find in universities now that, that often pushes us to speak in a certain way. It doesn't compromise on that, but it should still enable the students to speak to a wider audience. You're, you're saying really this is a response to the STEM-centric yeah. discourse, if you like. Absolutely. Prevailing winds. Yeah. STEM meaning, by the way, science, technology, engineering and maths. Exactly. Um, it's very very prominent in the UK higher, higher education system for a number of reasons, um, partly to do with, with government priorities and funding and that sort of thing, uh, but also STEM subjects tend to be more on the positivist side of things, which is a completely legitimate theory. The problem is it, it gets taken to a point where it's no longer seen as a theory. 
Um, it, and positivism really thinks that you can ascertain objective numerical truth of reality. And when that's applied to the social sciences, it's as if to say that, that human interaction, human behaviour can be quantified. It doesn't leave any room for ambiguity or interpretation or discursive analysis. And it's become so prominent that actually the way that research is measured, what they call impact, the way it's measured by the government, which partly determines how universities get their money. So, you know, there's a measurement for how impactful your research is. And I always find that quite absurd, that research that is inherently, let's say, qualitative, is having its, its value measured in quantitative terms. And for me, that, that's a complete contradiction. So yeah, this is very much a response to that, you know, to give students in the arts and humanities the confidence to stick to the, the if you like, underlying principles of arts and humanities. Hmm. How are people able to get involved in this conflux? I think we've got another year, year and a half left of, of uh, workshops, so there's, there's plenty to get involved with, and the, the slides are available on our website, and you need not be a uh, part of any particular discipline, it doesn't matter what your research is in, everybody's welcome, and you can dip in and out. Well, that's a, a very welcome note of relief to end on. Um, you're saying really it's an investment aren't you, in our careers yeah. As, yeah. as researchers and thinkers and exactly. reflective people. Great. Christian, thank you very much. Thank you. As Christian says, the conflux is open to anyone. You go to the website, which is technicriticalmethods.wordpress.com or via the Techne site. This has made a huge difference to my PhD. I now realise it's OK to look at your research question through lots of different lenses. You don't need to be exhaustive or exclusive with one thinker or one school of thought. And I now realise it's OK to be a magpie with ideas. <laughs>